Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me on the Facebook page throughout the week uh, at Evidence-Based Radio. And you can also listen to this and other episodes as a podcast on your favorite podcasting source, including iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. So um, the first thing I did want to mention, uh, and if you are a regular listener to the station, you probably already know this, but in case you're just tuning in, uh, next week is our uh, pledge week. Uh, VFR is completely run on donations and underwriting. The majority of our operating costs come from listeners like you. Uh, And unlike PBS, well, at least in the past, uh, we don't get any money from the government. Um, We rely completely on our listeners and, uh, you know, to do things like keep the lights on. And uh, (laughs) so, yeah, and we are completely independent. You definitely can tell that from my show. Uh, My content is probably not particularly popular with a lot of uh, organic and natural medicine folk who tend to abound in the valley. But I think it's important to focus on evidence-based reporting. Okay, I'm not going to... uh, harp on that tonight. Uh, We're going to talk about a bunch of different stories. So let us start. Uh, The first thing I wanted to talk about uh, is a set of research that has been done recently on peoples in uh, Mexico and in Central America. And so it's three different uh, research sort of um, It's three different researchers have been doing different things that all point to a very interesting um, hidden history of this area. And one of the reasons why it piqued my interest initially was uh, I might have mentioned last week because I did a bunch of stuff about uh, skepticism that I have this just... I, I can't explain why, but I enjoy, well, I guess enjoy isn't really the word. I often watch uh, old episodes of the show Ancient Aliens. And I mean, I think in some ways I that I want to know what the arguments are out there so that I can uh, combat them. But uh, it, it does after a while start to really wear one down Um in season 12, which is very upsetting to say because uh, all of this is just nonsense that they are constantly pushing out into the world and people, you know, they make they have this such this air of confidence about them that it sounds like, oh, they must know what they're talking about because they're so confident in the way that they talk about these things. And, you know, obviously people love a good conspiracy. So if you say that the government is trying to suppress this information, it makes it so much more interesting and titillating to listen to. Um, But they've really started to get desperate at this point. They're actually in season 12, a couple of episodes, they are literally teaming up with young earth creationists. Now, of course, they don't mention that these people are young earth creationists. But uh, yeah, they actually do a bit on, I forget where it is, somewhere in Texas, they have this hammerhead. And it was clearly left in a mine somewhere. 
and it was basically covered in limestone concretion. Well, they, of course, don't say that it was covered in limestone concretions. They say that it was, you know, buried in rock some amazing long time ago, and it's clear evidence that there were people in this area with complex abilities and knowledge of making iron and all of these things. It is just, it's just silly. It was left somewhere where it got a limestone concretion from having, it's the same thing like it's the same thing that creates stalactites and stalagmites. It was basically left somewhere where the the fluid that creates a stalactite uh, was able to cover it, and it was then later on found. And uh, this is a common creationist idea that, you know, they would interpret it not as, oh, this is a something that's from, you know, ancient peoples who knew how to do things. They would say, oh, well, you know, look at this modern hammer and look how it's in this concretion of rock. And therefore, we can't trust fossils. And so that is a really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting sort of mix of people because, uh, the ancient alien theorists are trying to say that it is old and it proves that uh, ancient people had access to uh, modern technology, whereas the young earth creationists are saying, well, here's this modern technology that looks like it's old, therefore you can't trust things that look old. <laughs> so yeah, it is a little bit weird. Um, and for some reason, I just, it's it's like that train wreck that you just can't look away from. And so getting back to this actual story, the reason it made me think about it is because one of the big things that they often talk about is the idea that uh, ancient peoples basically all knew one another. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, they talk about how, oh, there are pyramids all over the world. And so clearly there were these ancient aliens who came and talked to all of these different people and told them how to build pyramids, even though obviously a pyramid shape is the easiest way to build a large tall building um it's just basic geometry um it doesn't require some sort of grand uh conspiracy of ancient aliens it's really just what is the easiest way to build a large object tall so that it doesn't collapse have a wide base and make it be smaller as it goes up. I mean, it's very, it's very straightforward. It's, you know, it's literally child's play. When you build blocks as a child and you want to build up, you quickly find that the easiest way to do it is to have a wider base and make it go narrower as it goes up. <laughs> and so what this story is about is about um, Asian genetic markers and African genetic markers in uh, modern residents of Mexico and um, Central America. So the first one is from researchers Juan Esteban Rodriguez, who is a grad student in population genetics at the National Laboratory of Genomics for Biodiversity in Arapuato, Mexico. 
and his advisor, Andres Moreno Estrada. They were actually looking for genetic markers of Chinese ancestry in populations of northern Mexican uh, folk. And so they assumed that some of them would have intermarried with Chinese immigrants who moved into the area in the 19th and early 20th century in order to construct railroads. And so they looked at a database of 500 Mexican genomes, uh, which had initially been assembled for biomedical studies. And so what they found, uh, Rodriguez was surprised to find not only genetic markers for Chinese populations and Mexicans from northern states, but also genetic markers for Asian populations in people inhabiting what is today Guerrero, a Pacific coastal state that is around 2,000 kilometers from the U.S. border and subsequently didn't have an influx of Chinese immigrants in its past. And what's even more interesting is that it turns out that those genetic markers, which show people with up to 10% Asian ancestry, more closely resemble those found in populations from the Philippines and Indonesia rather than China. Now, it turns out that historians had a partial answer for why this was. Examining ships' manifests, they were able to determine that the Spanish had used the port of Acapulco in Guerrero as a port of call for galleons traveling to and from Manila. And, of course, among the so-called goods on the ship's logs were Asian slaves. But what historians hadn't known uh, was where the slaves came from once... um, where the slaves had originally come from, because once they were brought to Mexico by the Spanish, they became known only as Chinos or Chinese. And so because the Spanish basically labeled all people of Asian descent as Chinos, until this genetic work was done, historians had no idea that many of these people had come from um, Indonesia and um places like that. And so it's really interesting to find this new source of genetic influx. We're uncovering these hidden histories of slavery and people who lost their identities when they disembarked in a whole new country, said Moreno Estrada, uh, who with Rodriguez presented their findings last weekend at the American Association of Physical Anthropologists annual meeting. And so more well-known is the fact that most Mexicans have some measure of African ancestry uh, since huge amounts of African uh, slaves were brought into the New World by the Spanish. And so uh, Mexicans average around 4% uh, of African ancestry at this point. But in some isolated pockets of Afro-descended communities, Again, in Guerrero, but also in um, Oaxaca, the percentage can be as much as 26%. And most of that is from West African lineages. And so Maria Avia Arcos of the International Laboratory for Human Genome Research in Guarquilla, Mexico, has been examining this genetic legacy. She also found those strong echoes of Asian ancestry in some of her volunteers. 
but she was uh, focused on the African ancestry. She's hoping to use the data to trace the ancestry of these communities back to more specific West African groups or geographic areas than just simply being able to say West African. She'd like to be able to say, you know, from this particular region or from this particular uh, group of peoples. And so supporting this strong African ancestry is work done by bioarchaeologist Corey Ragsdale of Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville, who, with his colleagues, studied skeletal remains from Mexico City and estimated that between 20 and 40 percent had some amount of African ancestry. They also presented at last week's AAPA meeting. It could be that Africans played as much of a role in developing population structure and, in fact, developing the empire as Europeans did, Ragsdale said. And finally, researchers have uh, put out for um, pre, uh, they've done a preprint of their paper, and uh, the results of this work are from a genetic database of more than 6,500 people born in Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru. And so the researchers here were hoping to examine how native populations and populations from the Iberian Peninsula contributed to the present genetic makeup. But what they found was a high percentage of genetic variants that are common in the Eastern Mediterranean and North Africa, and especially among Sephardic Jews. These variants showed up all over Latin America, in fact, in nearly a quarter of samples from individuals. The paper's authors, led by geneticists Andres Ruiz Linares of Fundan University in Shanghai, China, and Garrett Helenthal of the University College London, suggest that this is due to a large influx of conversos, or Jews who converted to Christianity in 1492 to avoid being expelled by the Inquisition. What's interesting is they were ostensibly barred from migrating to the colonies. However, it seems that a much larger percentage than once was thought decided to do so anyways. And so all of this shows that our understanding of what we might think as settled history can be changed by new scientific evidence. The way we think about colonization is simplified, Ragsdale said. We're missing a lot of subtleties here. Okay, so let us continue on with another story about uh, basically archaeological finds this time rather than anthropological finds. Um, but so recently on Germany's largest island, Rügen, which is in the Baltic Sea, a 13-year-old metal detectorist and an amateur archaeologist stumbled upon a hoard of silver, believed to have once belonged to King Harald Gormson, known as Bluetooth, King of Denmark between 958 and 986. He most likely earned the moniker Bluetooth from a discolored tooth. You know, sometimes the simplest answer is the best answer. <laughs> uh, during his reign, he managed to unify parts of Norway, Germany, Sweden, and Denmark under his rule. He also brought Christianity to Denmark. His feats led to Intel's Jim Kardash, 
uh, naming Bluetooth technology after him because he said the new technology that would unify communication protocols like King Harold had united Scandinavia. And in fact, the symbol for Bluetooth is actually the runes uh, that are the initials of Harold's name. Uh, getting back to the newly discovered hoard, amateur archaeologist Rene Schoen and 13-year-old treasure hunter Luca Malishchenko, uh, <laughs> I'm sure I mispronounced that, discovered the hoard back in January. But then they did the responsible thing. After realizing it was a real treasure and not just tin foil or an old uh, lid, they called in a team of professional archaeologists. And the two were actually also able to join a regional archaeology group recently in excavating a 4,300 square foot area on the island to look for other finds. But this initial hoard included braided necklaces, pearls, brooches, a Thor's hammer, rings, and up to 600 chipped coins, including more than 100 that date to Bluetooth's era. This trove is the biggest single discovery of Bluetooth coins in the southern Baltic Sea region and is therefore of great significance, the lead archaeologist Michael Sheeran told the German news outlet DPA. The oldest coins in the collection date to 714, while the last is a penny dated to 983. This suggests that the hoard was part of treasure Harold took with him when he fled to Pomerania after being defeated by his son Sven Forkbeard <laughs> in 986. Yes, they really did have names like this. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that is very cool. And um, it's great to find these sorts of things. And, you know, it's interesting to find that Thor's hammer because ostensibly they had uh, switched to Christianity. He is supposed to have brought Christianity to them. But Obviously, you keep your heirlooms, even if you uh, have adopted new ways. And so it's really interesting to find uh, no crosses in that hoard, but a Thor's hammer. Uh, sort of early adoption of Christianity is always a... Uh, there, there's a lot of fun stories about how basically people went back and forth and back and forth between Christianity and paganism in these early days. And, you know, you could be Christian on Friday and uh, pagan on Saturday <laughs> in some places. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, but speaking of what was in some ways the Dark Ages, uh, I saw this story and I just had to talk about it because it's just, it's so mind-blowing to me. Today marks the penultimate day of the Vatican's 13th annual course entitled Exorcism and Prayer of Liberation. That's right. For the, for the past week, around 200 people, both priests and lay practitioners, have been getting together at the Pontifical Athenaeum Regina Apostolorum, a Catholic educational institution in Rome. And so this is in collaboration with the Group for Socio-Religious Research and Information. Now, according to the Vatican, demonic possession is just as real now as it was in the 10th century, perhaps even more so. But don't think that the Vatican isn't moving with the times. 
Cardinal Ernest Simoni of Albania admitted that he had used a modern invention, the cell phone, in his work. They call me and we speak. And that's how I do it, Simoni said. <laughs> also moving into the, I guess, at least 20th century, uh, last year, the Vatican finally permitted the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops to create an English translation of the rituals for exorcism. Given that there's less facility in Latin than there used to be, even among priests, it opens up the door to more priests to do this, Father Andrew Menk, executive director of the USCCB's Secretariat of Divine Worship, told the Catholic Herald. Amazingly, it's estimated that a half million people seek exorcisms just in Italy alone each year. And apparently more and more people are turning away from medical interventions and towards this sort of thing. Well, completing the course does not actually qualify you to perform exorcisms. That requires a special license or permission from a bishop. It is a sad fact that interest in this course remains so high. Now, the church does suggest that exorcism should only be performed once all other medical and psychological options have been exhausted. However, it should be patently obvious that exorcism is rarely a preferred treatment for what is almost certainly a mental health issue. In case you were uncertain, there is zero evidence to suggest that demons or the devil exist. The human mind is a complex and mysterious organ that is capable of many forms of self-deception, both fooling the supposedly possessed person and those who witness supposed exorcisms. Now, it turns out that this is unfortunately very much a real thing that is something that really needs to be dealt with, because in point of fact, uh, just a couple of years ago... Um, just a couple of years ago, there was an article by an actual psychotherapist talking about how he basically refers people to have exorcisms be performed on them. And it's just crazy. Um, and so, yeah, Whew. let's get into this. This article was in the July 2016 Washington Post, and it's by Richard Gallagher, a board-certified psychiatrist and a professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College. And so he starts out by telling the story of a woman he diagnosed as possessed by a demon back in the late 80s. According to Gallagher, a possessed individual may suddenly, in a type of trance, voice statements of astonishing venom and contempt for religion, while understanding and speaking various foreign languages previously unknown to them. The subject might also exhibit enormous strength or even the extraordinarily rare phenomenon of levitation. And he notes, I have not witnessed a levitation myself, but half a dozen people I work with vow that they've seen it in the course of their exorcisms. He or she might demonstrate hidden knowledge of all sorts of things, like how a stranger's loved ones died, what secret sins she had committed, even where people are at a given moment. These are skills that cannot be explained except by psych special psychic or preternatural ability. <sighs> 
as I've, as I've mentioned before, I believe even probably last week, uh, scientists often lack certain skills in skepticism that might otherwise be assumed to be part of their uh, toolkit. I've seen really convincing so-called psychics. I've seen people amazed by the things that they've been told by people swearing that they couldn't possibly have known what they knew. And I've seen people do the same thing who are avowed skeptics, who then go on to tell you exactly how they did it. Cold or not or hot, people can be read. Educated guesses can feel like hidden knowledge. And in fact, I've heard of sociological studies where people have sworn they've witnessed levitation, but when unbiased observers watch the video of the experience, they do not witness anything that defies the laws of gravity or other natural phenomenon. In other words, I don't think that demonic possession is a reality, and I think that we should be worried about its continuation in the modern world. Despite our strides in technology, we are still woefully behind in our understanding of the world, and many of us are still very much tied to pre-scientific notions of how the world works. Science education and a need for teaching critical thinking skills has never been more important than it is nowadays. Huh. Okay, we are going to talk about one more instance of this sort of uh, pre-scientific thinking But first, I do want to take a break and do some PSAs. So let us uh, do that. And then we will come back and talk about, uh, we're going to talk about giving a child a naturopathic remedy made from the saliva of a rabid dog. Yep, that is what we are going to do next. So hang on uh, while we do some PSAs before that. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash C-E-T. Drum and bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10, Saturday nights. 
Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov Lyme. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. You work hard for your wages, so you need to know most workers should receive at least the federal minimum wage and hopefully more. Also, most workers should receive overtime if they work more than 40 hours in seven days. These are the laws for everyone, documented or not. Have questions about your wages? Call the U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. It's free and confidential. Call 1-866-487-9243. That's 1-866-4-US-WAGE. We can help. A message from the U.S. Department of Labor. And we are back. So yes, we're going to talk about a young man who was treated with a homeopathic remedy. Um, so yeah, a Canadian naturopath decided that the best way to treat a young man who was having some behavioral issues and apparently doing some growling uh, was to give him a homeopathic remedy consisting of ultra-diluted saliva from a rabid dog. And so basically, the woman's logic was that since the child had been bitten by a dog, and that that dog might have had a rabies vaccine in close proximity to the bite, then the child could have been affected by rabies miasma. She asserted that this was a well-known phenomenon in homeopathy, apparently. I hope that I don't have to tell you that rabies miasma is not actually a valid diagnosis of anything. I also hope that I don't have to tell you that the natural path has, of course, claimed victory 
for the treatment, despite the fact that the child has continued to wax and wane with his symptoms of growling, aggressiveness, and other behavioral problems that probably indicate that the child has some form of hyperactivity, uh, which could be treated either behaviorally or with medicine by real medical professionals. Uh, in part, the naturopath wrote because ooh, there's a whole, there is a whole quote unquote case study about this poor young man. It is obvious that the remedy worked very well for Jonah, and he has been quite well for over two months. Now he is starting to relapse, which is expected. Children usually need several doses of the correct remedy over a period of months to years to completely recover. The mother shared some useful additional information about our little puppy dog boy, including that he only shows real affection with dogs, and his father was also repeatedly bitten by a dog, which may have contributed to Jonah's state as well. Yes, uh, she, has, she is actually arguing that since the father was bitten several times as a child by a dog, the young man might have an epigenetic disposition to this form of reaction to being bitten by a dog and actually uses the word epigenetic. Uh, this is not how gen epigenetics works at all. It is in point of fact, uh, Lamarckian nonsense. Uh, so Lamarck thought that if you had a giraffe and as it continued through its life, it continued to strain its neck to get to the highest leaves and that there was some sort of vital fluid that would help it actually grow its neck. And then when it had offspring, they would uh, inherit that growth that had been done while the animal was alive. And while epigenetics does have some similarity to that, it is absolutely not the same thing. Uh, basically, what epigenetics says is that there are some ways in which the, the ways that your parents uh, experience the world, especially um, environmentally and the stresses that go on in their lives, can have an impact on the um, egg and sperm cells, the germ line, and that some things can be affected. But these are on very small genetic levels, and they are not things like the memory of having bit, been bitten by a dog. Um, and in fact, most epigenetics is really about how your genes are expressed during your lifetime, uh, very little is actually impactful on germ cells in that way. So again, this is pre-scientific thinking. Uh, of course, it is homeopathy, which is the like cures like. So the child was bitten by a dog that had, had a rabies vaccine. So you give the child uh, saliva from a dog that had rabies. Boy, uh, again, <laughs> it's just, it, it's very frustrating to me that this sort of, um, you know, idea is actually considered to be in some way scientific by people. And in fact, 
Health Canada officials have asserted that this was a perfectly valid treatment, and there is no reason why anyone should be looking to have anything be done about this. Because, of course, millions of people use homeopathy, so it must work. (sighs) Again, pre-scientific thinking should not be the basis for medicine. But let's move on. Let's let's get back into some hard science now. Uh, and so there are several stories from this week that are pretty interesting that are actual real hard science. Uh, so first off, let's start with exploding ants. Insects have developed some very weird and wonderful mechanisms over the, fa- the last few million years. Uh, not to be outdone, by, in, for instance, by the bombardier beetle, Some ants in the treetops of Borneo are able to actually explode in order to defend their colony. Alice Licini, an entomologist with the Natural History Museum Vienna in Austria, has described the first new species of exploding ant since 1935. Publishing in the journal Zoo Keys, she notes that when the ants, who don't have large mandibles and cannot sting, are threatened, they raise their rumps as a warning. If the warning is not heeded by a predator, such as a much larger weaver ant, one or more of the tiny ants will bite the predator and flex their abdomens hard enough that they burst at the veritable seams. The new ant, named Colobospis explodens, uh, carries a weapon within its abdomen, a bright yellow, sticky, and toxic secretion that apparently smells faintly of curry. Being colonial in nature, it's not surprising that these ants would develop a defensive mechanism that involves the sacrifice of individuals. In addition, ants have developed a variety of defensive and offensive strategies. Almost all ants can bite, sting, or spray formic acid. Tomer Sozeskis, a behavioral ecologist specializing in ants at the University of Regensburg in Germany, told National Geographic. Others, such as the turtle ants of Central and South America, actually jump off of a branch if they're threatened and glide to another spot on the tree. Trap jaw ants use their large mandibles to catapult themselves to safety. And altruistic tendencies are not unique to exploding ants. A species of ant in Brazil closes its nest with sand each night. But in order to make it completely undetectable, between one and eight workers remain above ground. By morning, these individuals are generally dead. This act of self-sacrifice is called autothysis. And it's also found in some species of termites. Now, one odd feature of sea explodents is the fact that the smaller individuals in the colony, usually called miners, are the ones that do the defense. In most colonies, it is the larger individuals called majors who engage in defense. Majors are really rarely seen in the wild as they usually remain inside the nest, said Lassini, who is also completing a PhD at the University of Vienna. It turns out that majors have their own role as a second line of defense in this particular species. They have weird plug-shaped faces, and they actually use them to create living doorstops if the miners fail in their attempt to repel an attacker. 
The ants were observed to munch down on algae, moss, fungi, dead insects, fruit, and even fish. And Lassany hopes to learn more about the chemical makeup of their secretions and discover how they coordinate attacks in the future. Unfortunately, these ants live in, a highly in, live in highly endangered pockets of the rainforest of Borneo. Now, despite this, C. explodens has actually been designated as a model species for the group because it is particularly prone to this autothesis uh, when provoked. Uh, some, ant, some ants even apparently sacrifice themselves if researchers even got just a bit too close. Uh, which I think would make them hard to study in the lab, potentially. Um, so yeah, that, that's a potential uh, snag there, that if you have these ants and they're super skittish, that, that might be a problem. Um, but, you know, researchers have found a way around things like that. And so, yeah. Speaking of unique adaptations, you may have also heard this week about the Bajua people of Malaysia and the Philippines. Now, they've long been known for their ability to freedive and have earned livings doing eight-hour shifts in search of fish and other delicacies in the ocean. They are able to hold their breath for up to two minutes at a time with up to five hours of overall breath holding per day. And so it turns out that these people aren't just better trained than others, though they probably are, uh, to be able to hold their breaths. They've actually evolved to have abnormally large spleens. Now, the Bajua, often called sea nomads, are a small community with some still living in the traditional way on either houseboats or wooden huts propped on stilts over water. They have been known for their freediving ability for thousands of years. Today, some have adopted uh, some modern, modern trappings, usually just a mask and a spear, uh, in order to aid in their hunt for fish, lobster, and octopus. Researchers at the University of Copenhagen and the University of California, Berkeley, found that their ability to hold their breath for long periods of time is down to a genetic mutation which has been selected for as time went on to increase the size of their spleens. Again, uh, you might not have thought that that would be the answer. <laughs> you might have thought it would have had something to do with the lungs, uh, but the spleen is actually crucial to the body's response to acute oxygen shortage, which is, of course, what is happening when you're holding your breath. And so what happens when you hold your breath for a long period of time is that the body reacts. And so it slows the heart, it constricts the blood vessels in the extremities, and shrinks the spleen. Shrinking the spleen during this reaction causes it to release oxygenated red blood cells, which are then able to provide extra oxygen to the body. The bigger the spleen, the more oxygenated blood cells that can be made available during oxygen shortages. Figuring that enlarged spleens probably accounted for some of their excess, their success, Melissa Iardo of the Center for Geogenetics at the University of Copenhagen, uh, who is also lead author of the study, notes that her researcher started her research started off in a rather odd fashion. 
I basically just showed up at the house of the chief of the village, this bizarre foreign girl, referring to herself, with an ultrasound machine asking about spleens, uh, she said in a statement, adding that they're the most welcoming people I've ever met. And so they found that as a population, the Bajua people had larger spleens than unrelated neighboring populations. Even Bajua who did not engage in diving had larger spleens, which indicated that it was a genetic variable at work. They found over two dozen distinctive genetic markers separating the Bajua from the, Salu- the Saluan and Han Chinese also found in the area. One of the markers was for PDE10A, which has long been known by researchers because it regulates the thyroid hormone that controls the size of the spleen. Now, of course, the size of one spleen isn't the only thing that allows people to enhance their ability to hold their breath, but it does give the Bajua a distinct natural advantage. Overall, our results suggest that the Bajua have undergone unique adaptations associated with spleen size and the diving response, adding new examples to the list of remarkable genetic adaptations humans have experienced in recent evolutionary history, concluded the authors in their study. And so the researchers hope that by studying the Bajua, they will be able to develop new treatments for both high-altitude hypoxia, uh, too little oxygen as opposed to zero oxygen, and sleep apnea. Now, of course, another cool example of genetic evolution at work in recent genetic uh, history is the mutations retained in populations in Tibet that allow them to survive comfortably, or at least mostly comfortably, on the Qinghai Tibetan Plateau, which is as high as 14,800 feet above sea level. And of course, therefore has a reduced amount of oxygen available due to the lower air density. In 2017, researchers from the University of Texas discovered mutations that allowed the inhabitants of the plateau to survive not only with less oxygen, but also with less food. And it turned out that one of the genes is even a gift left from the mysterious Denisovans, a subspecies of humans which, like the Neanderthals, disappeared from the earth, but not before interbreeding with the ancestors of modern humans. Thus, their legacy can be found as echoes in our genetic history. The particular variant, EPAS1, triggers the production of hemoglobin, allowing more oxygen to be carried throughout the body. So that's very cool, uh, because not only do they have this incredible uh, evolutionary adaptation. It's also from one of those weird uh, former species of human that just does not exist anymore. And we really only know them from like a couple of skulls and some genetic markers. Uh, And so again, that's one of the things that I love about science is the fact that there's so much that we still don't know anything about. Like we barely know anything about Denisovans. And yet here they are having given this wonderful uh, or partially given this wonderful genetic gift to these people to allow them to live in this really inhospitable land. Um, It is very cool. And I just, um, you know, I'd love 
learning more about this. And of course, uh, recently they found that there are some other genetic variants that are clearly from yet another subspecies of humans that we haven't even discovered yet. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting. And of course, also, again, puts the lie to things like young earth creationism, um, because we've definitely been here forever. Um, well, not forever, but we've definitely been here for millions of years. Uh, also, uh, and, you know, this is something that I, I almost talked about last week, but didn't because I'm like, should I bother? But just to put it out there, since there has been just so much silliness going on uh, lately, and our uh, you know, our community and our culture has become so uh, sort of fact-free. Just just a reminder that the Earth is not flat. Uh, the Earth is a globe. Um, there is no conspiracy. Uh, and yeah, though, um, you know, now as of today, since they confirmed, I forget his name, but uh, the completely unqualified uh guy for head of NASA. Um, now I'll believe in NASA conspiracies uh, more readily because someone who uh, doesn't believe in climate change uh, is now going to be leading NASA, which actually does a lot of work on looking at climate change. That's, that's, that's unfortunate. I am very unhappy about that. Um, but yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on from this. And let's talk about uh, physics for a moment. Well, actually, zoology. Uh, <laughs> so researchers at LIGO, the Laser Inferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory at Hanford Observatory in eastern Washington, actually discovered a series of weird blips in their data uh, recently, which they referred to as short duration bursts. Now, it turns out that rather than aliens or some sort of weird cosmic phenomenon, the problem was thirsty ravens. Speaking at a meeting of the American Physical Society in Columbus, Ohio earlier this week, the researchers discovered the blips after increasing the sensitivity of the LIGO array. Because they knew that environmental disturbance disturbances could cause data issues, they had already set up a series of uh, microphone sensors that had been placed around the facility. And so after listening to a recording of this from the past July, they heard what sounded like the pecking of birds. And so venturing out along the array, the researchers found bird peck marks covering a frosty pipe connected to the cooling system. And so they actually even observed a raven in the act of pecking at the ice, uh, likely to slurp up the bird equivalent of a slushy, uh, noted Beverly Berger, a physicist and ombudsperson of the LIGO scientific collabor collaboration. Uh, she noted this at the conference. Now, other glitches have occurred due to airplane airplane flyovers and uh, misset equipment, but this was the first time that uh, ravens <laughs> had 
made a uh, blip in the system. Now, unfortunately, the Ravens won't be able to do it anymore because the researchers have reconfigured the pipe so that it will no longer accumulate ice. Uh, But they also noted that the uh, Ravens were better off than the uh, weasel who uh, a couple of years ago got stuck in the um, Large Hadron Collider and actually uh, was electrocuted and uh, they ended up having to take a bunch of it apart. And unfortunately, also, he did he or it did not survive. Um, So that was rather sad. Okay. uh, I actually, my last story is actually about NASA. Uh, It's very cool. And, you know, this is all stuff left over that they had already started working on before uh, the new regime came in. And so they have these twin uh, cube sats, which are basically tiny little satellites that are about the size of a um, suitcase. And so they are uh, called MARCO. And so that stands for Mars Cube One. And uh, so they were built at JPL. And basically what they are doing is they are heading for Mars. They actually aren't going to be doing any science of their own. Um, What they are going to be doing is they're basically a proof of concept. And so what we want to see is whether or not CubeSats, which are these, again, you know, most satellites are very big. They're like the size of a school bus. And these are literally the size of like a briefcase. And so what the scientists want to know is whether they can actually survive beyond Earth orbit. Um, And also, they've never used them with actual propulsion before. Uh, Usually, they are just used as... Um, sort of geocentric um, or geosynchronous orbiting uh, satellites in and around the Earth. These are our scouts, said Andy Klesch of JPL, Marco's chief engineer. CubeSats haven't had to survive the intense radiation of a trip to deep space before or use propulsion to point their way towards Mars. We hope to blaze that trail. And of course, because scientists are not only very cool, but sometimes sentimental, uh, they have actually been referring to these twin satellites, not as Marco A and Marco B, but rather as Wally and Eva. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, hopefully they are going to make it towards Mars, at least, if not to Mars. And um, it will definitely be very helpful for us to know that we can send these kinds of very small satellites out to places in the uh, solar system. And so, yeah. Well, that is all the time we have for tonight. And so, yep. I will be back next week. Please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.